You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, we're going to kick off, jump right into this podcast. Long overdue, uh, almost uh, we should send apologies out ahead uh, in advance because, um, you know, this is uh, very, very, uh, how should I say this? Matt and I enjoy the content and the information coming from this man um, and all the work he's done over the years. Um, There's been so much research done with him and colleagues of his that is often um, sent our way, uh, discussed in camps, on consults. There's a lot of great information with this guy and uh, and the people he works with. And so we're going to jump right in. And I've got Matt here. Matt, sorry you didn't get I'm much here. of an introduction. Um, no, Matt's coming in. We're doing a teleconference here. But Dr. Marcus Lashley, you there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the kind words. Yeah. We, uh, you know, you guys, you've been part of a podcast for, shoot, what, how, how many podcasts have you been, are you up to now? How many episodes? Yeah. How many episodes? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> kind of all run together um, after yeah. a while. Uh, I, I know, know I've you... been a part of 40 or 50 on Deer University, and then I probably have. I'm getting up around 20, I guess, on Fire University. Yeah. And then, of course, I've been on a bunch of guests uh, with with uh, guys like yourselves. Yeah, I would assume most of our audience is aware of your work and some of the podcasts you've been involved in. But if not, give us a little rundown. Yeah, so I host a podcast called Fire University, and that really was – an idea that spawned from working with Bronson Strickland with Deer University. And we decided when I uh, got the word that I was moving to the University of Florida that we would try to build what he had built off of what he built with Deer University and make a podcast network. I host Fire University in that. There's also Habitat University and Pond University. And they're all under the umbrella of Natural Resources University. And the idea with that was that we could try to do the kinds of research that, you know, our constituents all want to hear about. And that for us normally are people who own a little piece of land or who, or who are really avid about hunting, or maybe they're both and uh, what they can do to enhance habitat or, uh, you know, uh, desirable phenotypes and deer or whatever. So that was the idea is that we could build that into a network and try to reach more people with more topic areas to you know, just bring the science to the, the landowner uh, in a usable, 
context. So that, that's a, a general rundown of that. Not the fire university one. It really, I try to talk about some basic fire ecology stuff, but let's be honest. What I like to talk about and what most of the people that I talk to like to hear about is how we use fire to manage habitat for deer and turkeys and, and sometimes quail, depending on where I'm at. So uh, that that's really what I focus on a lot in, in that podcast. So it's mm-hmm. not just fire. It's also talking about it in the context of managing game species. Yeah. You had a really good one where you interviewed a guy about patch burn grazing uh, that I really enjoyed. Yeah, Sam Fullendorf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That was a really good one. So yeah, I, appreciate that. I know a lot of our listeners have listened to uh, Mississippi State's Deer Lab um, mm-hmm. and and I'm curious, you know, tell us a little bit about that transfer, your work there, and then now you're at, like you said, Florida. So um, tell us a little about your uh, work there. Yeah, so my my first faculty job, uh, I went to Mississippi State, and I was the habitat specialist on the faculty there. And because of my interest in game, I immediately hit it off with, with Steve and Bronson there and joined the MSU Deer Lab, and uh, I guess for four years, I was really involved in, you know, the Deer Lab social media and podcasts and everything, and, uh, you know, sort of bringing that habitat component to it, Mm -hmm. and uh, then I, you know, it kind of, not not suddenly necessarily, but I I had a career path change uh, that came up where... uh, I came to the University of Florida, and the idea there was that uh, the University of Florida didn't have anybody that was really uh, in the, the deer and turkey research world, per se, which is kind of a shame in this part of the world where, you know, you obviously have deer, but you also have the Osceolas uh, here only in this state. And that was what was really interesting to me and also to the university, their interest in the was to bring a program here where, where it was needed mm-hmm. uh, that was focused on game species management, particularly habitat management. And I teach the, the wildlife habitat management here in, in this department as well. So that was the real drive. And, you know, someone that's interested in fire ecology as well, uh, this is the fire capital of the world. We like more prescribed fire than anywhere else per capita. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you start looking at it from all those perspectives, it, it was a pretty obvious decision that I, I should come here and try to build a, a program centered around yeah. game species and fire. So I knew I liked Florida. Um, <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people you, look at that from state. I mean, in, in the way that they manage, but, but fire and palmettos and pines go together like peanut butter and jelly. I mean, oh, yeah. a fire dominant uh, ecosystem. And again, I, I think people just look at, sunshine state and say beaches but man really cool stuff that happens in and across the state um we've been fortunate to be down there some but i mean it's just so it's so neat yeah when that's another thing for me uh, you know my lab is a little more diverse i guess uh some i I often get asked what do i do and it's hard to answer that because i kind of have a bunch of different kinds of things going on and it was kind of exciting to come here to Florida because it is wildly different depending on where you're at in the state. I mean, just to give you a little bit of, you know, a little dip of what I'm talking about, just when we think about deer, there are deer rutting in almost every month of the year in Florida, which is just crazy to me, but it's, you know, the diversity in behavior all the way down to the different ecosystems and the way they function and the different species. And I mean, it's just for me, a really exciting place to be, to do all kinds of cool stuff that, you know, hopefully can influence land management. What about when you say that there's deer rutting in almost every month, that would, I I would assume that then that means there are deer rutting when it's not hunting season. Well, that that was the case until just recently. So the the Fish and Wildlife Commission did a big study where they looked at the breeding chronology across the state, and they redesigned uh, some of the 
hunting units so that the rut was captured. Okay. Because there because there were places where the season included, I guess, part of the, the time when deer don't have antlers on it, but it completely excluded the rut. Mm-hmm. When you think about sitting in South Florida in August on the deer stand, it doesn't Ooh. seem that exciting. But, you know, if that's when the rut is you might be willing to take that 92 year you know degree day on the, on the <laughs> yeah, I don't know I don't know but that's why I I was and so my follow up question was if that's the case then do they notice has there been any observations in genetics and things with uh, the ability to, to where they're 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 rutting and uh, breeding totally undisturbed for the most part um but now we don't know I guess yeah, well, that, it, it's really interesting. I, I've talked to uh, some of the deer researchers in the state about this, like trying to figure out what's going on. Why, why would it be so wildly different across the state? And we have a few uh, ideas of why that might be, but particularly in South Florida, it seems to be completely driven by water. Hmm. So, you know, during the wet season, phones would drown. So yep. they're born in the winter instead when it's you know still fine in terms of temperature. But, uh, you know, they're not going to have the issue with drowning. So, wow. Then you, you jump right across to the Keys and then, you know, the phenology goes months in, in a different direction again where the water isn't an issue anymore. You know, it's just it's really weird, but it's exciting, you know, because of. I have close proximity to a lot of weird stuff going on. I like that. Personally. Yeah. One thing that comes true, or I, I guess it comes to mind when I think of Florida and habitat management and Matt and Kyle, and I think Frank, right, Matt? You, did you all yeah. three? You went down yeah. and worked a property, and there was a, a species that had an acorn that is not found through much of the United States and it's really unique. And I, Marcus, I saw you shared it on social media, maybe a week two, maybe a month ago, uh, just for, um, the audience. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah. So I actually was on a a place that Florida, the university just, uh, acquired through a donation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call it the DeLuca Preserve, and it's down in the central part of the state. And I was, I, we're, we were establishing a project down there. I have a student that's going to be studying deer and turkeys there. And we were down there looking around, and I was walking in vegetation that was about half the height of my knee, you know, foot tall, uh, maybe a little, little better than that. And uh, I noticed all these big acorns all over them. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, we're looking out over this oak flat, so to speak, with all these acorns and the the, the tallest one is knee tall, you know, yeah. so these oaks and it was a dwarf, uh, a dwarf post oak or, a, excuse me, dwarf live oak Man. that, uh, that we found. And yeah. I was just blown away by it because, you know, I'm, I'm accustomed to sitting in the oak flat, not over the oak flat. And or walking through the oak flat. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where it's the you know the height of a yard that hadn't been mowed in a while. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that that really did. That was really interesting to me, and I posted it on on uh, Instagram, I think, because I just I thought people would get a kick out of that. No like doubt. It, you know, we have all this weird stuff going on in Florida, and here here's another one where you've got you know acorns that are the same size as any live oak or you know white oak even. Uh, that you might expect on these little bitty tiny trees. Yeah. I remember when Matt and them were down there and they took pictures and they sent it to me. Of course, I haven't (laughs) ever ran into anything like that around here in the Midwest or anywhere, basically. And I was like, that's that's very interesting. Like, I can't imagine what that'd be like if we had that around here. And I'm like, oh, yeah, in most of the country it'd be – it would certainly be over-browsed because of high deer density. So (laughs) whatever. Right. (laughs) Well, the the interesting thing about that is I, I didn't get it on film, but there was a flock of turkeys moving through there, and that's huh. actually why I got out and went out there to see what they were doing. Yeah, and they were in that oak flat, and I was thinking the deer and turkeys can just reach the acorns right on the limb. You know, yeah, and there was clear evidence that they had been doing that frequently. Oh man, so, well, yeah, that the structure and height of that that cover and availability of food right there for wild turkey. 
uh, it was uh, like shocking to me. I was like, oh my gosh. And then the structure <laughs> quail, like this is perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. speaking of acorns, and and I should say, um, Marcus is a little bit more buttoned up than um, with his pronunciation. But since he is from the south, I'll say it for everybody. But we're talking acorns and acorns today. Acorns. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, uh, when you when you let my Alabama's out, you know it, it comes about back acorns yeah there you go uh, Uh, matt you weren't on the (laughs) phone yet when we were talking about that and i said you you mean acorns or i forget how he did it but yeah being from alabama he's used to saying acorns but now in in the position he is he needs to be a little more polished up so he'll say acorn for for the listeners yeah i I try to i try really hard to enunciate because i find when you get outside the south that most people don't know what i'm talking about and it's not because (laughs) they don't understand it's they literally don't know what i'm saying they don't know the words that I'm saying. So. Oh, man. <laughs> so I've tried to polish that up a little bit when I'm talking to folks that are not from the South. My wife tried to get on to me because I've always pronounced it Akron. And yeah. uh, she said, you're not going to teach our kids that, right? And I kind of looked there and she goes, you're not. So she kind of nipped <laughs> that in the bud. But, yeah. So yeah. Um, This is how tradition dies. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the buck stops here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yes, so this week's topic, uh, Mark is going to jump in with some of the research that they've got coming out about oaks and acorns and different, uh, all kinds of different research that they've got that's pretty exciting, especially for deer hunting. This is going to be tied into hunters as well as land managers. So um, I don't care, Marcus, you pick which one we want to jump into first and let's, let's pump the gas here. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I think we can jump right into that. The folks that have heard me talk have probably heard me talk about fire. And obviously we've already talked about that a little bit in this, this podcast episode, but, uh, when I heard a student and many of your listeners may have heard of this student cause he writes frequently in his own podcast and has his own podcast and all that. Mariah Vargas, who's a former graduate student in my lab. And we initially wanted to study fire in upland hardwoods and he, he was primarily interested in deer responses to fire and and uh we wanted to do some stuff with vegetation and acorns and uh when he got there we strung together somehow over a year of no burn days so where we couldn't even get the you know we had a few days where we could pull a permit but we couldn't get the stands to burn even and uh so we hit the pivot a little bit and we decided, uh, because he and I both are avid hunters and, you know, we like to let that drive some of the questions that we do in research and uh, relay the information in that way to landowners so they can use it. We decided we would look at oak masting and how it affected deer behavior and then kind of uh, tangle that into the, the fire-related questions to figure out how burning acorns might actually affect deer use or other species' use of acorns. So long story short, Mariah ended up collecting uh, just over 75,000 acorns for this project. Oof. So I'd like for folks out there to go out and pick up 75 acorns and see how long that takes you <laughs> and then that'll kind of put into perspective the truckload of acorns literally that how, how long was his this. his uh research time like how long was mariah with you uh a little over two years well there you go the first year was collecting acorns and <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well and the, the thing that made it worse is we to do this experiment we wanted to do it during a year that was a poor mass year so he, uh, he collected all those acorns during a, a year where there wasn't many acorns around. Oh, so, he was so uh, <laughs> even worse. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we, we teamed up. The, the uh, folks at Mossy Oak Native Nurseries lent us some of their equipment that they used to collect acorns for their uh, products. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that helped facilitate that. And, and Mariah was great he went out there and and uh he didn't complain about it that much or at least not to me uh, he he just went out there and got it done and we have a picture somewhere it's probably online somewhere where uh we took a picture of all the acorns that he had picked up after he got done before he put them out and it was literally a truck like the truck bed full of acorns 
Oh man. <laughs> so uh which anyway, for we, people that have picked walnuts like here in the Ozarks, you pick walnuts to then haul them to yeah. get them hold and, and, and sold. And I can remember as a kid filling up, you know, I was a, a young teenager, uh, 16, mm-hmm. I think, cause I had a truck and I, I loaded <laughs> my Dodge Dakota down with walnut holes and, uh, thought, yeah. okay, I'm going to go make some cash. And I made 20 bucks and I thought, nope, <laughs> not worth it. I can mow grass yeah. and make more money on that. And so, uh, to, to hear that you filled a pickup truck full of acorns, is just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. That's I was a- pretty blown away. You know, it was kind of funny, just a sidebar on that. I remember we talked about this idea, and, and Mariah was sitting in my office, and, and I was like, well, let's, what, what we wanted to do was simulate a good mass year for 20, and we thought we'd do 25 oaks where we'd have 25 reps of this simulated mast, and then we'd have 25 other oaks that we don't put any under, so they're like a control. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, let's you know, go find in the literature about how many acorns per, you know, per area of canopy. And then let's look at the canopy size of these trees that you've selected out in this, this study area. And we'll, we'll figure out how many you need. And he's like, okay. So he got all the numbers together and we sat there and we're calculating it. And we came out with 75,000 and he just was looking at the paper. And, uh, and I was like, well, uh, you know, it's 75,000, and he just looked up and was like, all right. And they got up, and they went, walked out, and they did it. You know, I just, it was just amazing to be the resilience. You know, the, he, he didn't even bat an eye. He's like, okay, I guess that's what it is. Oh. He, he didn't bat an eye, but he redid that math in his head three times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's, uh, he's done run that equation a few times. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, but that, that's basically what we did. You know, we, he and I both, and I know that a lot of folks listening out there probably do this. You sit on a deer stand and, you know, I, I wonder about things like, well, this is a really good white oak that's producing. How much more opportunity am I getting out of sitting here than just sitting randomly somewhere in the oak stand? Mm-hmm. You know, I just think about stuff like that and want to know. You know, I would probably go a little further than most people because I want to know, like, how many more bow shots exactly am I going to get? You know, that's the kind of stuff I'm thinking about when I sit on the stand. So, yeah, uh, yeah, this was an opportunity where we decided we'd figure that out. And, yeah, he went out and, and uh, we we used Schumard Oak because, again, it was a poor mast year and that was one that we could find enough. So, uh, you know, it was a red oak that, that uh, most people probably don't think of as the high preference deer acorn. You know, it's not a white oak like uh, what most people are targeting, but we thought that'd be a good representative oak for the study site and one that we could get enough acorns to, to figure it out. So he went out and basically simulated a master under all these trees. And uh, we put cameras up to monitor how much deer use and other species were using it and uh then quantified that basically over the next year mm. what uh what so, oak species were were mainly used in this study well for the for the acorns for for this particular study they were just shoe marks so okay. just standardized it across all of them the other experiment that he did that i was going to talk about he had eight oak species in, okay. and it was more of a diet preference and uh, we'll get to that in a minute if you guys want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, with the one one thing I guess that kind of blew me away on the the acorn addition experiment, which is what we call that one. You know, he he put them out during I think it was November. Uh, we, we're going to have a a video on social media where you can see the the uh, experimental design and all that stuff and and the data, and you can see like when he put them out and how the deer response uh, looks over time. Mm-hmm. But the thing that blew me away about it is, you know, we're putting out acorns when the oaks would drop them during November. Yep. And we basically didn't see any deer response for a good while. You know, it was a month or so, which wow. if you're a deer hunter, we would interpret as they don't like those acorns. Mm-hmm. But this, again, was a year that there aren't many acorns on, on the ground you know there weren't white oak that, that wasn't very 
very prevalent. So they just weren't eating them. And then all of a sudden, it was about probably the first week of January when it just went through the roof. And it was it peaked in mid-January, the use of all those trees. Huh. And it, it was substantial, the, the response of deer. It was pretty incredible. But I, I never would have thought that they would sit there that long. And then all of a sudden, it came time that it was time to eat shoemart acorns, and then they wore them out. It makes you, you once again r- r- the importance of diversity. Uh, yeah. Because if you think about you know all the different oak species generally found in in a region, and you think about okay, mm-hmm. if there's a window of time and that's when that's highly selected, like you know during that two week period, the most preferred acorn or acorn is species X. And then if you yeah. look and you're like, oh, you know, if you look at the course of these three months here, there's a time where each one of those is very selected over the others. Yeah. No, I, I think you're exactly right. That, you know, there there is clearly preference that changes over time. And having a diversity of oaks producing is a way to sort of smooth that out or you always have something that's high preference available yeah. that, that's the way to do it and it, it the thing that it that really kind of opened my eyes in terms of me being a hunter and, and thinking about that information and what we're actually seeing in the data you know when you're out looking at trees that are dropping we typically are gra- gravitating, at least I do, to white oak species, particularly yep. white oak, but yep. swamp chestnut oak, post oak, you know, those species. And that's probably really good to key in on those while they're dropping because the white oak species, we actually, in the diet experiment we'll talk about in a few minutes, we didn't have any white oak because they germinated in the, the refrigerator when we were trying to keep acorns. So that the point of that me telling you that is those acorns fall off the tree and the white oaks will germinate and turn into a seedling pretty much right away yeah so when a deer is going to eat a white oak is right after it fell off the tree or it's not going to be an acorn anymore yeah you know, it's going to be a seedling yeah so that's that what... strategy is pretty good for them but with the red oaks those things sit there until spring right. so you know, you may have a tree that's dropping and you think they don't like it, but in reality, it's just not time for them to eat it yet. Yeah. I, 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 might... I, I've had the same discussion about even just pokeweed when people are like, yeah. well, yeah, I hear you say the pokeweed's awesome and deer love it. And I'm like, they, they love it, but they may not like it right now. But you just yeah. keep watching it over the course of 12 months, you'll see that they like it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sometimes in the... I see that vary from property to property with that particular species. And, you know, we put out a lot of work on the diet selection process and how deer are deciding what to eat when. And, you know, every individual is different. And you'll see populations go through transitions like that where different plants or different seeds or whatever are, you know, they may be available for a while, but they may be one time when it's really important and they key in on it. And that was something that was really telling to me with the, you know, this study is even though there weren't many acorns available, I mean, we put, you know, literally thousands, tens of thousands of acorns on the ground and there weren't that many on the landscape otherwise. And they still didn't eat them until January. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that to me is, is huge. And that was going to be a question I was going to ask is, okay, so here's this study that there's not a lot of other competition for acorns or mass during this, this year that mm-hmm. you guys did study on. Yet they waited until a certain time, shifted focus, and then scarfed him up. One question is, what do you, what else in this study area were they selecting as forage during that time of the year? And then secondly, do you think that they shifted or, or let's say had this, um, you know, innate, just, we know that we're going to start eating red oak acorns later in January. So that's when we'll shift to them. Or was it? A food supply um, was a limiting factor that drove them then to the acorns. That, that's a really good question. Uh, there's in that system uh, there on the property there were there weren't other supplemental feeds or anything like that. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. were food plots, uh, 
so deer that had access to most of these these trees that we've put the acorns out they they had access to cool season food plots and yeah. I, I i'm trying to think of what i know that there were some brassicas that were top sown uh as a cover crop mm-hmm. in some of the ag fields and then there were i think in the food plots we had a a uh, cereal grain probably wheat mm-hmm. and crimson clover something like that in it gotcha. but i can't recall what, what they were so they did have some that it was not you know probably isn't even one percent of the landscape so it's pretty low abundance of food plots uh, but they also have uh, quite a bit of early succession, you know, so they had a lot of woody browse and stuff around as well. So it wasn't like they were forced to eat this. It was still in the, they were selecting to eat it most likely. Yeah, I, yeah. I think they, I don't think that they were starving into eating them. They yeah. they had other stuff, it, particularly like the brassicas. They, you know, that was probably the largest portion of the rest of the food base and I would mm-hmm. say that they're probably peaking at that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it, I, I've thought through all those sorts of things, but one thing I know for certain is they wore them out in yeah. January. Huh. And is, and that's kind of a, a post rut for that, that area. Gotcha. So we're, we, we've gotten on past the breeding so window. I understand this correctly. When were the acorns selected or picked? Were they you were mean, they picked up like the when, same year? Did they pick them up in whenever? Uh, so so we. Oh, you're talking about when did we collect them? Yes, sir. When did when were the uh, acorns yeah, collected? Right, right before we put them out. Okay, so you we went we around and selected them, and then you went and put them out all in the same year. There was no drying time. There's no storage time. Um, yeah, that, they were fresh acorns. Okay, yeah, right off the trees. Right off the trees. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, so I think it's almost like. It's almost like the deer were selecting to stockpile a certain forage, even though it was available. Um, yeah, you, well, it's like there's no worry about it germinating and yeah. not being available. So just leave it until you need it or you want it or whatever. Yeah. Until winter, you know, all the woody browse, you know, they would have been less, less forbs on the landscape at that time of the year. And it's like just... They knew when when to go to that food source, and it's like you know mm-hmm. sometimes put deer and and turkeys in this box of okay this is what they do, um, but yes yes that is we but we can't force them out of that box and, and this is a kind of a prime example of and deer going to do what the, we just need to learn what deer do and manage around that and stop trying to like force them into man they're not eating my red oats just wait. Maybe maybe they know something a little bit more than than we do, and <laughs> I easily see that in this this type of uh, study and results. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things, anecdotes that I think are really interesting to to add right here. Where, what you're talking about, you know, we don't think about timing of of all these things and the adaptations of the animal, but you know, they've been eating those acorns that species for a long time. And yes. they know when it's meeting the nutritional demands and they have adaptations to synchronize to that timing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something that's sort of related to that, that what, that I learned when I was working with, with uh, the other guys at the MSU deer lab, when they had, you know, they have a deer facility there with animals that, that they uh, do a lot of cool research on. And uh, it's the same thing. They, you know, the animals in that facility have all they can eat of high quality food all the time and they still dramatically reduce their intake at some times of the year or, or increase it in other times of the year. And, you know, you see changes in their body condition and size and everything, even though they have all they can eat all the time. Wow. And it's just crazy. You know, this telling exactly what you just said, you know, really stark example of that where, the biology of the animals is what it is, and we need to understand that, and we're not going to force it to be different. It's, yeah. it's a it's a biology, yet like an environmental factor, or environmental influences for, for each region that's mm-hmm. going to dictate that behavior. For exactly. Behavior. That's really, that's cool. That's very cool. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, really, really cool stuff. I, this is the that's the kind of stuff that gets me really excited, especially when we start thinking about how all those things work together to, you know, to 
culminate in the way the system functions and you know how well we can hunt it you know all those yeah. sorts of things well that was my next uh, question I, I, how do you take this information as a hunter and say how do i how do i become more successful because of this and i think one of the things that comes to my mind is going trying to uh, let's tie it back to the habitat uh, education for each landowner going try to identify the oak species native to your farm or, or occurring on your farm and mm-hmm. then try to key in on when they drop and then not yeah. just when they drop but when are they preferred how do you find that out and i think through hunting observations where are deer going where are they coming from where are they most frequent on camera but then the other mm-hmm. thing you can do is through scouting just in when you harvest uh cutting open that stomach and seeing What's the majority of that stomach content? Uh, are they selecting, you know, in our part of the world, is it chinkapin acorns? Is it yeah. black oaks? And, and trying to tie that all together and year after exactly. year after year, you tie that and go, okay, you can almost formulate a calendar or a, a, a calendar hunting strategy going, okay, this window of time is more of about post oak acorns. This window mm-hmm. of time is more about chinkapins. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And particularly, you know, I guess if if you don't get anything else out of that, understanding when the acorns are falling is really important for white oaks, you know, post oak, chinkapin oak, you know, those. Uh, But I think you have an opportunity with a red oak not to, you know, regardless of what species it is, not to to think about when they're falling, but use that as a cue of, you know, a later hunting opportunity. Yeah. Like if you, if you know this, <clears throat> you, you, you have months to, in some cases to plan for that where, you know, this one, okay, this one's dropping really well. And if you've done your homework and you know, when deer are going to key in on that, then you can get prepped for that. Whereas the white Oaks, you know, if the white Oaks dropping, it's time to be there. So, mm. You know, yep. it's a little bit different strategy depending on what type it is. And I, I think that's uh, really good information. And, uh, you know, people can do the same thing that I do. You know, we're, we're out there monitoring responses of wildlife, you know, whatever wildlife species on cameras. I mean, mm-hmm. most people have a few game cameras and you can figure this stuff out yourself on your property. Yep. Go figure out when, you know, when a... You, you know, your, your Schumard oaks or, or whatever, when the deer are keying in on that resource, you know, a couple of, uh, game cameras can go a long way. Yeah. 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 You know, and this, this might be, uh, you might tell me, Hey, let me answer that question later on the podcast. But, um, Ash, I mean, Adam and I, excuse me, Ashton's my brother. I don't know why I did that, but <laughs> I have, have not, not debated, but just gone back and forth with, you know, I think the common, um, uh, adopted thought process is you put the white oak on this pedestal because fresh into season, a lot of white oaks are dropping. You see a lot of deer activity congregated around them. Mm-hmm. Less hunting pressure. Probably for uh, that reason he mentioned, Matt, too, now, like knowing that there, there's only a small window of time when those are uh, can be eaten before they're sp- yeah. sprouting. So it's like, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. If it, you know, you eat fresh bread because you don't want it to mold quickly. But if it's going to sit mm-hmm. on the shelf for three months, you might hold off on it. Yeah, exactly. And, and, but, but you know, the, the general whitetail hunter across the U.S. thinks, okay, the white oak is, I mean, we need to do everything we can to preserve all these white oaks. But we're, we've kind of been sitting back here saying, well, really, the red oak is, is honestly the tree and the crop, the mass crop that is going to extend the food value in an, in a time frame that is generally more limited in food than any mm-hmm. other time. You're not going to see this just all out, just um, barrage of activity in and around or underneath the red oak trees necessarily. It's gradual, but that, mm-hmm. that ability for it to be gradual um, and, and extended through this late winter stress period all the way into spring green up, that to me, I guess us, is really valuable. What where do you yeah. kind of come out of after examining all the different uh, acorn varieties and and some of this study that you guys have done? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That you know that's a, a, another important thing of having a diversity of oaks, right? As mm-hmm. you 
you know, you have some that it's all in, all at once. Uh, and, you know, if you have a couple of species of those, maybe you can string them out across the fall. But with this study with the red oaks, one thing that I didn't mention that I think is also pretty impressive is if you actually look at the statistical difference across time from the time that we put the acorns out all the way into next summer, the deer use was higher, or in other words, they were attracted to that resource for months. The use of deer around those trees was elevated for months after Mm. we put the acorns out. You know, there was a real big peak in January, but in terms of it just being more use than, than under oaks that don't have acorns, it was elevated for months, and I just thought that was incredible also. I, I had no idea. I thought they'd come in and vacuum them up, and then they'd be done with it, you know, over a couple-week period. But uh, that's not what happened. I mean, they they used those well into spring. Mm. Hmm. That's that's important, I think, only solidifies that, yeah. that kind of thought. That's where, like we say— well, Weeks. If our hands are tied mm-hmm. behind our back and we're forced in a corner, we have to say the red oak, red oaks or white oaks. Now pull in all those species under each one and say, okay, which one do we want? And we've kind of gotten to where we're like, ah, you know, to kill deer, uh, I would select white oaks because it's probably easier. But yeah. to feed deer and to have a a more reliable mass production, I think I'm going to go with red oaks. Yeah, I think you're right on in terms of it being a, an important resource that deer can utilize the red oaks definitely provide a much longer window yeah uh, for that use but yeah. you know ideally you have both oh right? ideally yeah absolutely i, I want to sit on i want to sit on a white oak during late bow season and have it raining down and, and all the deer in there eating them yeah uh, and and i also want those deer to be able to eat through the spring on acorns if I need them or want them. That's right. So, you know, it's, yeah. what's interesting with that is, you know, I see a lot of people supplementing and, and adding mass production uh, type trees to a property that maybe, maybe it's, uh, they have limited supply of mass producing trees. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, this, I think from a planting standpoint, if you're trying to select a variety um, that you're, that you're trying to maybe increase forage at a certain food plot right mm-hmm. going to want to select a white oak um in that region because you're looking for that time frame that okay when it drops that's what deer are going to yeah. um maybe opposed to a red oak it, it just this type of um uh, information really kind of i think can help that that selection process and if you are supplementing from a mass production and you're looking for a specific dropping and you want that I mean, just all-out brawl for for acorns. Probably mm-hmm. look at a white variety versus a red oak if you're doing that type of uh, planting. Yeah. Well, you know, another thing that that's interesting about that, and you're talking about planting specific oak trees. I, I've done plenty of this, and I have historically tried to vary the resource availability by varying the species and when they drop the acorns. But mm-hmm. this data actually kind of refutes that that you could be varying when the acorns are utilized just by having different species that they like at different times even though they may all be dropping in november so you know you could have several white oaks and red oaks that are all dropping in november but you still might have months of mast availability and you know keying in on different areas even when they all drop at the same time so it's another interesting way to think about that yeah certainly huh very, very cool. Very cool. Um, I know that there's more to talk, and this this is going uh, more research here um, as I move on down my list. But I know mm-hmm. we want to talk about the use of fire in the selection yeah. of acorns. Acorns. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, we I'm going to settle it. Sure. Yeah, I'm going to settle <laughs> it. I'm going to say acorn, but for you guys up north, I do mean acorn. There you go. We can put a little little box in the uh, in the show notes so that everybody knows we're saying acorn. Yeah. So, so we pronounce it acorn. Google will acknowledge. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah. So uh, like I was saying earlier, we have two parts of this experiment, and Mariah 
you know, it's really interesting to see him work because uh, he, he was very clearly an avid hunter and was using that to his advantage. So he had a, he had these, I, I don't recall the brand or the type because I don't use the same kind of thing, but I thought it was really interesting. He had basically a mobile set of, of uh, climbing sticks yeah. that he was using and he was taking these things around and, and we started uh, this experiment, which was a diet trial with all these different acorn species or acorn species. Uh, <laughs> we had eight, I think, that we ended up sailing in on. And uh, he was using these climbing sticks to climb up the tree. And we were literally putting a camera on a limb pointing down onto the, the trials. Huh. So uh, we, we put videos, we put some videos on social media and we'll continue to do that. Uh, where you can see it, but it's a really odd view because it's like you're sitting in a deer stand and a deer is eating right under you. You know, you've had that happen. Uh, yeah. That's basically our point of view on the the deer eating, you know, or, or whatever species eating out of these uh, trays of acorns that we put out. But, uh, you know, it was really funny because I, I didn't really go through how he needed to design it other than this is the experimental design you make it happen. And uh, yeah. that's what he decided to do. He's taking his deer stand out there uh, to put up the cameras. So, but uh, anyway, the, the, that experiment, you know, originally Mariah came to, to work on fire and we ended up with a string of bad luck. I think it was one of the wettest summers ever in Mississippi. Mm. Uh, so we, we didn't uh, get to implement that, you know, the broad scale treatments that we wanted to, but we still wanted to focus somewhat on fire, uh, taking into account, uh, the, the oak mass stuff. So we came up with a really cool idea and it stemmed from, you know, I, wor- I work with people a lot and I talk about fire a lot and I, I try to encourage people to utilize the burn window. The most u- underutilized part of the burn window generally is the fall. There's a lot of good burn days, and not many people want to set stuff on fire at that time because they like hunting or they like college football on Saturday or whatever, uh, or they just don't know they can use it then. You know, we can go on and on. There are lots of reasons, but one that keeps coming up among scientists is, uh, you know, we're often trying to encourage oak regeneration in upland hardwood systems with fire. And there's concern over burning in the fall because we know that it will decrease the viability of the acorns that are on the ground. So in other words, we burn in the fall and we kill all the acorns and we're not going to have germination and oak regen as a result of that. So I sort of, uh, with Mariah, blended those ideas together and thought about it from a different perspective. It's like, well, if we burn while acorns are on the ground, that might change the way that wildlife eat them which might be a real benefit to, uh, you know, somebody that wants to hunt over an oak stand, if it makes them really like them, for instance, or Mm -hmm. makes them easy to find or whatever. But it also, you know, that in some ways it could benefit the oak if the acorns that don't die from fire germinate and do better. So sort of this idea of blending those together, and the the part that we really didn't know about, I'm talking about from a scientific standpoint, the part we didn't really know about was if we expose a bunch of acorns to fire, is that actually changing the preference for those acorns by wildlife? And particularly, Mariah and I are there looking at the images trying to find deer pictures because that's what we were really thinking about. But we looked at all the all the wildlife species that came to them, and uh, it was really really interesting. We you know, you imagine if you burned a stand, you remove the leaf litter, that exposes acorns. That's a confounding factor, right? They may eat more of them just because they're easier to find. Yep. Uh, also, you ever burn a piece of toast? You may not want to eat that piece of toast because you burn it. So if you've got a bunch of acorns, a, a hole on it's been burnt, maybe that decreases the, their preference for it. You know, so you got a lot of things going on there that could influence whether or not a, a deer wants to eat an acorn so we tried to standardize that and we came up with this design where he, he basically did these little mini plots and i'm talking about like a couple of square yard prescribed fires where he put acorns down in the leaf litter and then burned over it and we had eight species and they were we ended up using all red oaks because the white oaks we had collected for this were germinating in the fridge and 
and uh, we weren't comfortable using those. So we ended up using, I think we had black oak and, and uh, willow oak, uh, you know, several things that are common like that, shoemard, southern red oak, several things like that. Uh, some big acorns and small acorns, you know, the whole gamut. And uh, basically he exposed all of them on one experiment and then directly adjacent to that we had the same food array with all the acorns available uh where he didn't burn any of them and they're sitting on these little trays it's really cool if you look at the videos that it it's basically a little tray of white sand with acorns on it so we could see them easily yeah and uh yeah we just basically monitored those in these trials and we did them in that pair of design where we could see okay are they clearly selecting burned versus unburned and is there differences in the ones they want to eat in terms of the species of oak or different wildlife species doing different things and there are a couple of things that are really telling about that one uh deer they, they got for the entirety of the experiment almost every acre that they ate was a burned acre which was for me kind of wild i was thinking oh they're going to be eating all the acres yeah. I didn't. I didn't think they would avoid the burned ones, but I certainly thought they were going to eat the ones that weren't burnt too. And uh, when they were both available over the trials, they were clearly preferring the burned ones, mm. which I thought was pretty interesting. So uh, that was one thing that was telling. Another thing that was really interesting to me is you could look at it with a different wildlife species, like a gray squirrel. We know they love acorns, right? The pattern was exactly the opposite of deer. They ate almost exclusively unburned ones. So that was also pretty interesting. Uh, another thing that I thought was interesting about it is we didn't see a clear preference for species. They seemed to just sort of randomly be eating the different species of oaks. Mm. We, we didn't have a very clear pattern. It seemed to matter a lot more whether or not it had been burned. That's interesting. You, yeah. yeah. What What do you think from a chemistry standpoint, um, and maybe you had these acorns forage tested afterwards, but what do you think happened with them being burned versus unburned? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, you know, that I, I'm uh, speaking off the cuff here because we don't have those data yet. Okay. Uh, we really love to cook things and it makes it taste better and it's more nutritious and you know like the time of the year there's probably some folks out there collecting chestnuts or or buying chestnuts to roast over an open fire right uh it's i I think some of it is probably being driven by the acorn quality is being changed fundamentally by the fire what aspects of that it is like i don't know it, it could reduce tannins there's been some research to suggest that could occur, uh, but there's not there's not that much on this uh, this topic. So I, I don't know what changed about it, but I think that it probably just did taste better to deer, and mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense when we relate it to our own food, right? Where we cook mm-hmm. a lot of things, you know, just being exposed may have made it more digestible, or you know, a, a one of you know, like maybe lower tannins or or other defenses or you know, something like that probably changed in it. The interesting thing about squirrels is they, you know, they a lot of the acorns they get, they don't actually eat it. They go and take it and bury it somewhere and then come back later, especially red oaks. The, the majority of them generally, when they first get them, they don't eat it right away. They take it somewhere. Yep. And they often select sound acorns. You know, they're going to cache it somewhere and then come back two months from now to get it if they need it. And they don't want to put one in there that's going to grow mold or, or die, you know, yeah. where they can't do come that or, or maybe a weevil later. eat it or something. Come back two months later and it's growing on it. Uh, it's like, yeah. oh, oh, more rats. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that that's no good. So they typically select sound acorns to go to remove. And we think that probably was what was going, why we felt the opposite pattern with them is we know that direct, you know, the, the direct effects of fire. In other words, when you run that fire over an acre, it has a 
you know, about 50%, give or take 10 or 12%, depending on species and the fire type, uh, it, it kills about half of the acorn. So some of the selection by squirrels may have just been that when they smell that it's been burned or maybe they can detect the soundness and that a lower proportion of the acorns were sound. Either way, they, they tended to go after the, the unburned acorns. Hmm. So we think that's probably what was going on with them is they just, they need the seed to be alive and either the charring on the acorn or maybe the, the meat, they can smell it or whatever. They had some cue that, that they seemed to be avoiding. Hmm. Now, of course, you... this is speculation because I, I can't get into the head of what the squirrel was doing, but you know, <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense biologically for what's going on in the squirrel's world. Yeah. So with that, in the, in the previous study, you talked about how the red oak was um, available, but then it was consumed at the right time of mm-hmm. the year. That, and that was dictated by deer selection, but but here you you mentioned that there was not a variety selection when these areas had been burned. Um, they just mm-hmm. kind of, hey, it's a red oak, it's been burned or it's unburned. Did you guys see a difference between those two studies and the timing? Let's so let's say, okay, you burned and the red oaks had dropped. Did that? Uh, maybe reduce their ability to, like we're saying, survive longer. And so that was a cue to come in and eat them. And that maybe drove some of the selectivity or, or did they hold off till later in the fall winter timeframe to come and eat those red oaks as well? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, the short answer to that is I, I don't know, but that's an interesting thought. If you've burned, let's say in November when they're falling off the tree, I don't know if that makes them eat them faster. Hmm. Uh, based on this data, I would assume that would happen. If we're, right. you know, first of all, if it makes it higher preference, they may go on and eat it because it's ice cream or uh, if it sort of reduces that window of availability but because the acorns aren't going to be viable as long, that could also drive that. Uh, but the way that we had that designed, we, we wouldn't be able to determine that. But mm-hmm. what I can tell you is we did the experiments during the same time frame when they were really wearing out the white oak or the red oak uh, from the acorn edition. We did the, the trials with all the red oaks during that time when they really like red oak species. So mm-hmm. uh, we, we were actually trying to standardize that problem with the experimental design, which kind of... Uh, detracts from me being able to directly answer your question sure. unfortunately but it did let us determine with more certainty that the burning of the acorns did apparently shift their preference for the same acorn hmm. that was going to be because my it was question during the time when they really like red oaks anyway Yes. Right. Uh, when you, when you list out those eight species, you would probably, mm-hmm. you know, we are, we don't have some of those here in the Ozarks or hunt anywhere with those type of acorns. And so I guess my question for you would be like, you could probably sit down and create a list one to eight on preference. And yeah. I'm assuming. I have done that. <laughs> okay. And, and then yeah. whenever you, you throw fire in the mix, you can say, well, they're all selected probably equally. Um, I think of like trees that we have that is like, you know, on a given year, some of those, the oaks that we have, the acorns aren't consumed by deer very much. Like mm-hmm. a, a blackjack, a uh, blackjack oak comes to mind for me I'm going, you know, they're there. They don't really, I don't, I've never hunted deer going to blackjack trees, dropping acorns, yeah. but I know squirrels do and I know turkeys mm-hmm. do and I know quail do. So it's like. If from a management standpoint, going okay, if they've got areas that is like these are these are places that nah they don't really eat these, but I need some additional forage. I could burn these areas, but maybe I'm complicating the heck out of managing my own farm. <laughs> well, I think you know management is complicated first of yeah. all, uh, but one of the ways that makes it easier is to make it more complex. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and what I mean by that is mix it up. Yep. You know, when you, you're more likely to hit your mark and provide all the things that everything needs if you're mixing your, your strategies up. And that's why you wouldn't want just one species or, or uh, one management approach for any given place. Yeah. But to, to speak to the blackjack oak, you, may, you reminded me of something that 
that uh, is an in- interesting addition here. I did another research project. It was actually part of my, my PhD where I was going out and collecting deer feces and we were reconstructing their diet and I yeah. did it throughout the year. And uh, it was in a place where blackjack oak and turkey oak and a couple of those species like that, the scrubbier species were really prevalent. Yep. And the I don't want to misrepresent the data, but as far as I can remember, the peak in acorn consumption uh, in terms of the proportion of the diet was actually after the deer season was over. Mm-hmm. So like a February, yeah. even March time frame, they were really eating mast. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that may be going on when you're, you're talking about one of those species it may be readily available during hunting season but it may be a couple months later yeah when they're really utilizing it which would be great I, at that point of the year i'm i'm focused on building fire lines trying to burn and not really paying yeah. attention to going hey there's deer over there eating blackjack acorns yeah exactly yeah when and even in that study i would i would i was kind of shocked by it because i was trying to figure out what they were eating and you know, just looking around on the landscape and having deer collar and all that stuff, I wasn't perceiving that. Yeah. And then when I did their diet, I was like, well, shit, there's no, you're not a, you know, you can't deny that. Like half of their diet in many cases would be acorns. And, uh, you know, it's the first week of March. Yeah. Acorns in the spring. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Huh. So. That's definitely that, uh, makes you scratch your head a little bit about, oh, this is probably more complicated than me as a hunter thought. Yeah. Well, you know, we can go on and on about how complex it is. I mean, that, I think that's exciting as somebody that's constantly trying to understand it. And it, it feels like an elusive creature to try to understand. Mm-hmm. Just how, you know, you, you think of this being a really simple question and it's like, no, it's super complex and, the more I get dig into it, the more complex I realize it is. Yep. Uh, but you can add in the, the shifting demands of the animals and, you know, the competing uh, influence of different uh, foods on the landscape. And, you know, they, it just gets so complex. And the way that diet selection itself works, where they're constantly chasing efficiency and minimizing toxicity risk and you know you've got all these things going on in their their mind you know that they apparently innately are using diet selection to accomplish and uh it gets really tough to do things like rank which acorn is going to be best no because the reality is it may be all of them are best sometimes yep you know yeah yes and most likely that is the case yeah yeah exactly oh man i think it's to try and simplify things obviously for hunting strategy we want to know okay this red oak that's the species to hunt under but it doesn't work like that i mean you can't just give those answers because you know nature creation it is it is diverse and and i think that it's almost like this uh just security blanket for land managers and hunters out there who are trying to make improvements and understand things the best is if you want to manage the best, then do things that are diverse. Change up the mm-hmm. game and you learning because there's more to be revealed about oak ecology and sure. uh, learning today. So just throw some stuff at the at the board, per se, and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. It, there, we have lots of practices that are promoted and we know that are effective. And when you can mix up a lot of things that are known to be effective in some cases and then you have, you know, you're covering a lot of your, your bases then, uh, you know, by diversity, which I think is a, a big take home point. That That's the easy part of this is that we know that diversity is critical. Yeah. It's default. So, yeah. And, and plus, you know, it gives us, you know, all this complexity gives us something to argue over of our campfire. So <laughs> yeah. should right. I plant this oak or that oak? Should I plant this or that? Yeah. yeah. Should I burn Everybody in the spring or burn in the fall? And, yeah. And, and everybody, you know, you, you have observations that you see from a deer stand or when you're walking around or, or whatever, and everybody has a little bit different sampling of that, and then we end up with a bunch of arguments over That's a right. campfire, which would probably 
you know, probably should be taken as actually all of you are correct in some context and probably not in others. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on. Um, as we, yeah, I know I don't really want fun. to take any more of your time, but that's very interesting stuff. And I know I certainly want to get you back on to talk about something you don't get to talk about very much at all, which is fire. Ha ha. <laughs> um, when we get a little closer to fire season. And jump sure. right in that. So, man. Well, if you if you were listening to this podcast, it's fire season right now. There you go. Oh, well, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah when the yeah. majority of people no, are I, burning, how's that? Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd be happy. I, I really appreciate you guys bringing me on the show. And, and uh, if folks want to hear me talk again, yeah, uh, then I, I'm glad to do it again. Yeah, and and they can find you. I, I can't remember if I said it pre-show or not, but. He's got the best handle on Instagram, um, and I would encourage you to go follow him, and that is Dr. Disturbance, right? Yeah, and Dr. Disturbance on Instagram and Twitter, I think. Uh, and then, of course, my lab is, is uh, the U.S. Deer Lab, University of Florida Deer Lab. And if they so. want to hear your podcast, you are Fire University, and that is on iTunes and probably everywhere you can get podcasts, right? Yep, all of the major platforms you there can you get go. it. And we also have it on our YouTube channel and along with videos and, and all that stuff. So uh, if you'd rather listen to it that way, you can do it, do it through YouTube. There you go. Well, Perfect. we appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, guys, and hope you all have a good season. Yeah.